<clears throat> worry, 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 you know, and um, sometimes exactly, that's exactly what we do. And if all the, all the messages, all the passages, I guess I should say, that I could preach on, on that subject, this would be the passage, all right? But it comes in context of something. Let me share something about real worry. Jeremiah Clary was a farmer in 1931 in the Panhandle um, area of Oklahoma. And for years, for several years, after he settled out in Oklahoma, like a lot of other people, the wheat crops were just really good. It was a place you can go. People were settling there. People were building their farms. But in the late 20s, for about five years, they, there came a great drought, no rain, and therefore, everything that you planted blew away. It got so bad, the Eastern reporters came out there, and they discovered that it was a dust bowl. That's what they called it. And that's the, sometimes the nickname for that area today, the dust bowl. It got so bad, you could not hardly see in front of you for all the dust. There was no topsoil left. And every time they planted a crop, every year, it came up and they lost everything. And he was down to his last crop of seeds. He had a choice. He could abandon his farm like so many others were doing, go and get another job somewhere, maybe wait one day until the rains came back and then plant the crop and just simply leave it in the barn. Or he could cast it out there one more time and see what could happen. We'll come back to that story in just a minute. But isn't that a dilemma sometimes in our own life? taking that risk with God, stepping out on faith, doing something new in our life that maybe we've never done before. And we fear that. We worry about that. At the close of this message, as in the first hour, we're going to take our once-a-year time to fill out a card that has to do with giving uh, to the church for the coming year. And it's something we've done for 25, 26 years. And every time we do that, there's fear and worry that strikes into the hearts of people. I don't know if I want to make a commitment for a whole year. Man, that's a long time. And to give something for a whole year, maybe when you're not giving much at all, and it's, it's a fearful thing, it's a worry thing. Is God really going to provide for me? Well, as we look at this passage about anxiety, about worry and fear, kind of all the same thing in this passage, it comes in a context and to bring you up to date on what we've been going through in the book of Matthew as we started preaching and teaching through that a few weeks ago, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason why Matthew wrote his gospel, and there's a reason for every single one of the gospels in context, is to get the Jewish people on board with needing a Savior. If you recall, in the Old Testament, uh, the chosen people of God were the Jewish people. They were born from Abraham. They had the law. They had the Word of God. They had everything and they felt like that there was a Messiah coming one day that was going to free them of the Roman Empire. And we think about the second coming of Christ. That's the only thing they saw really in the Old Testament. And so, again, they saw themselves as a suffering servant, not Jesus dying on the cross. That was all allegory. That was all uh, symbolism for them. And so Matthew's idea was, I have to get my people to a lost condition. And he says things, Jesus said things like this, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, very legalistic people, by the way, you shall likewise perish. He said in Matthew 5, 48, hey, look, if you want to get to heaven on your own, if you want to please, you want to be God follower on your own, then be perfect as my Father in heaven is also perfect. And of course, 
the, the listener there in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus was standing up by now preaching to the whole crowd, they had to be looking at him and thinking to themselves, no way I can be perfect. So where does that really leave me? In chapter 6, he makes a turn here, and he begins to talk about meeting the needs of the needy. Talking about giving, talks about money. First four or five verses, and immediately, uh, in another gospel at least, uh, the disciple says, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus taught them to pray, the Lord's Prayer, and then talked to him about fasting, because why? He's talking about praying from the heart. He was talking about living from the heart. You want to know what it means to be a God follower? He's going to tell you in this passage. Now, he's, he's talking about prayer. He's talking about fasting. What does he come back to? We looked at it last week. He comes right back to giving. And I know the disciples had to be thinking, wow, we thought we got him off that subject. Immediately, he just comes right back to it. And he says, where your treasure is, that is where your heart is going to be also. And so we looked at the whole idea of stewardship, that is, we're not owners, God's the owner and we're the stewards. We looked last, month, last week on how much the Bible says to give, where to give it, and why to give it. And so we open up this passage because they're, they're looking, Jesus is looking in their faces and seeing the fear. Can you imagine, these were not American people. These were not affluent people. They were poor. Talk about paycheck to paycheck, they're more meal to meal. Very few people in this crowd were people of means. So why would he be talking to them about money when there are only about 500 verses on prayer in the Bible, less than 500 on faith, and over 2,000 on money? Why would he do that? Because you don't have to be rich to love, to, to depend on money. Money can turn into greed and materialism, and money can have a profound negative effect on your life. And Jesus knew that. And so as he looked in their eyes and saw the anxiety and fear, he comes into this passage. So we're going to be looking at your struggle today, the struggle over this, and then we're going to be looking at the why of it, the source. Why do we struggle? Why do we really struggle with, with giving it all? And then look at the solution as well. I want to look back up in verse 24 and begin where we left off last week. No one can serve two masters. Well, that's obvious, I think, to, to most of us. Nobody can really serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Then he says this, because your God can be anything. Your idol could be your family. It could be uh, the ministry. I know guys that, and maybe I've struggled with that as well. I, I wouldn't you say maybe. Ministry can be first place in your life. Family can be first place in your life. Money, your job, your career, your success, how people look at you could be anything. But he didn't say, you cannot serve God and yourself. You cannot serve God and your career. You cannot serve God and your family. Didn't say anything like that. He picks out money. You cannot serve both God and money. And we said there's always a conflict there. Last week, I gave the illustration about Bob Buford, who wrote the book, Finishing Well, before that, Halftime. In reading the book, Halftime, he came up with a great, there's a great story behind Bob Buford, used to be in, involved in a lot of television stuff, and so he pretty wealthy guy, and uh, he was very much a strong Christian. So he's looking at the second half of his life, kind of the retirement phase, but even uh, before that a little bit, he, he just felt like at a point in his life, he needs to make a turn. So he hires this guy, Michael Cammie, who was uh, very famous back uh, 20 years ago in, in the business world in strategic planning. 
And so he said, uh, look, I want you to map out something that my, where my life needs to go here in the next 20 years. And so he began to study uh, Bob Buford's life and began to ascertain what was important to him. And he came to him and he said, look, I'm having trouble here. Anytime I make this strategic plan for somebody, there's always something in their life that's really in the center of things. And all of life then is going to flow around that. Now, Michael Camby's not a believer when he's saying this. But he told Bob Buford, he said, look, money, there's two things in your life, money and Jesus Christ. Now, both of them cannot go in the center of that. They're conflicting a lot of times. So what's in the center? Is it money or is it Jesus Christ? Because I cannot plan anything for you in the next 20 years until I know that. And he said without hesitation, I mean, he's a believer, right? Jesus Christ. And at that moment, it dawned on him that maybe he had never really made that kind of concrete decision to follow him first and foremost. You see, money's always going to give a conflict. For example, you're trying to sell a car and you, you can't decide whether to tell this person kind of a white lie or just be totally honest with them about the car. You know, there, there's a, the case in point of a, of a contract, you know, and, and you think to yourself, well, I know I signed this contract, but I'm going to get out of this contract. You see, there's always conflicts over money. And so as Jesus opens up this passage, he says there's going to be a conflict and there's a fear and a struggle there with you. Because Proverbs says, watch your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. And so what he's trying to do is saying, look, if you, if you really want to be a God follower, you can't say Christ follower because that's not really in the Jewish frame of mind at this time. But if you want to be a God follower, it has, it has nothing to do with little, your, your little checklist. It has something to do with the heart. Does your heart really belong to God? Is God really on the throne of your life or is there something else? And he begins to talk about some illustrations about money. He says, therefore, don't, don't be anxious for your life. An anxiety in the Greek language means to be drawn and quartered, to be double-minded. Bible says in James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And so what a double-minded man is, it's a, it's a Greek picture really, of a horse being tied onto this hand and this foot, another horse uh, tied onto this hand and this foot, and both say, they say, giddy up, and both horses go opposite directions, and you're split down the middle. It was a form of execution, to be torn apart. You're torn apart. You think, I want to follow God, I want to follow God, but, 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 but this, what if? What if God does not provide for me? And so he says this. He says, look, Verse 26, that the birds of the air, they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And we read this and we think, well, what's he really trying to say? Well, he goes on with another illustration. And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow and neither toil nor spin. I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Gives another illustration about grass. For, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, that's just wild grass growing in the field. Not your St. Augustine on your lawn that you've got to constantly water. All right? He says, tomorrow is thrown into the oven. And what about you, oh, you of little faith? Wow. Kind of an indictment. Why is Jesus saying that? Well, he's standing there in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's looking up, and he sees birds. Consider the birds. They don't toil. They don't spin. God takes care of them. 
And he looks around. He sees a beautiful field of lilies. And he says, what about those lilies? Aren't they beautiful? Even Solomon and all of his, no matter how much he dressed up for the occasion, he didn't look like that. And God did that. God's taking care of them. And we look at that and say, yeah, God, why can't I trust you? Why can't I believe that? I'm not talking about the great blessing here. I'm talking about just simply providing for me. That if I give something away, I'll never get it back. I'll never be able to feed my family. And that's what they were going through. You and I think, well, are we going to, if I give something away, am I going to be able to take that vacation? If I give something away, am I going to be able to buy this or buy that? They were thinking, wow, if I give this away, and they were already tithing, by the way, the 10%, because that was the Old Testament law. If I give this away, if I'm more generous than what I think I need to be, God, are you either going to even provide food on my table? And so we get to the, the problem here. Because you think to yourself, well, the birds, hey, they're doing what they need to be doing. Birds fly in the air, and maybe a sparrow grabs it, flies, and he, you know they're real quick about everything. You got a robin that digs for worms, very diligent about that. And they're doing what they're, they were designed to do, and God takes care of them. And we ask ourselves the question, yeah, but God, am I doing what you've really designed me to do? Consider the lilies of the field. They're planted where they need to be planted. What if they were planted in the North Pole? They couldn't survive. One if they decided to be planted in the, uh, the desert, Mojave Desert somewhere. They couldn't survive. The lilies are where they're supposed to be. The birds are where they're supposed to be and doing what they're supposed to be doing. And we wonder ourselves, but what about, what about me? The whole idea of this passage is going to conclude in verse 33. Let me read it to you now. We'll come back to it. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. We say the problem is, God, I'm not real sure that you're on the throne of my life. I'm not sure if I'm seeking you first. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, wow, if I make this step, is God going to provide for me? And in our case, God, if I make this step, is, are you also going to provide the things I kind of want to do that I could do if I didn't give you the money? And so we struggle with that because we're not maybe where we need to be. Now, you think about it for just a moment. It's really a, a kind of a strange thing as I think about it. We think to ourselves, God, look, I'm a Christian. I prayed about this thing. You want to answer my prayer. But you see, when we claim that, God, we think God's not asking me to do anything. He's not asking me to risk anything in that prayer. And so, therefore, we expect God to come through because I haven't invested anything. Nevertheless, 1 John 3, says God's going to answer your prayer because you're obedient to him and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. But we don't know about that verse. And so we think to ourselves, God, you know, you're kind of obligated here. Why don't you answer my prayer? But on the other hand, we think, God, I, I can't. If you ask me to risk something, in this case money, you ask me to risk something and give something, then I don't trust you to give back to me because there's a condition here, I know, that I would seek first the kingdom of God. God, how can I ask? You think to, you know this in your mind. I don't need to say it. How in the world could I ask God to bless my idol? God, look, you know, I love money and, 
you know, I would admit that for the world, but I do. And so, therefore, God, money sits on the throne of my life. So, God, bless my career and bless my job so I can make more money, so I can have more pleasure, so I can buy more possessions. If, if that happens, and I say me hypothetically, but if that happens to you or me, and that is the God of our life, it's only going to encourage us to seek money more and to love money more at the expense of loving God. And we know that deep down. I'm not telling you something that your subconscious mind does not already know. And so there's the struggle. There's the, it's not about money. It's not about provision. It's about, God, can I trust you because my life belongs to you? Because I've taken my hands off my life. Can I really do that? God, how in the world is money going to help giving money, going to have a blessing until it overflows when I can't control my own thoughts? When I worship this, when, when I get mad over this, and I get angry over that, and I, I'm stingy over here, and I'm, God, there's just so much wrong with my life. How would money giving, giving money possibly change that? So why do we struggle? Why do we struggle with this? Notice in verse 30. He says, oh, you of little faith. Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall I eat? What shall I drink? Don't worry about those things. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Now, it's not talking about some of you guys and guys too, but ladies as well. What shoes should I wear? What clothing should I wear? What what clothing should I wear to church or to work? It's not talking about that. It's talking about just having a shirt. Okay? Just having something to wear. Just don't worry about those. For the Gentiles seek after these things. The non Followers of God seek after that. Why? Because they're not putting God first. They know they're, they're on their own, you might say. And so why is it that we have a problem with this? Because of this. God has made you. Are you ready for this? God has made you to be a king. That's right. Read it in Genesis. God formed man from the dust of the ground. He said to man, man and, men and women this. He says, you have dominion over the birds of the sky, over the fish of the sea, over every living, creeping thing. We were given a kingly stewardship. And a steward is a manager of another's household or possessions. Now, God was the owner of all the world. It says that in the Bible. The earth is the Lord and all that contains the, the earth and those who dwell in it. First Chronicles talks about that. I could read that verse, but I'm not. Genesis 1, 27 talks about being fruitful and multiplying, having the dominion. Read about it in, in 1, 27 and 28. You can read about it. We were made to be stewards, that is. And what a steward was in the Bible, yes, he was a servant of his master, but he had control of the whole household. The cook worked for him. The house cleaner, the gardener, Everybody worked for him. And Adam, everything worked. Everybody, everything worked for him. Except for God. The problem with Adam was he thought, I want to have control over my own life. I, want to, I don't want to take my hands off my life. I want to be not only the king of everything else, I want to be the king of me. And it took him out of the will of God and everybody else as well for all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. But there's now an innate, um, carnal, fleshly need to be the God of my own life. 
And money's just part of it. Larry Burkett, who was one of the founders, original founders of uh, Crown Ministries, when we view money and possessions as belonging to us, we inevitably begin to look at every aspect of life the same way. We become the person in charge, and God becomes our servant. And so what are the results of this? It affects our whole relationship with God. And every time, he would ask us to do anything at all because we want to be the king of us. And it says, seek first the kingdom of God. What does that mean? God's rulership in your life. And his righteousness, God's character in your life. And you're never more like God than when you give. I'm never more like God when I give something away, whether it's money or anything else. God is a giver. He has given us and given us, and he wants to give more. But boy, we're not sure. We have this fear. We have this worry. Now, I share with you a little bit about my testimony about giving. And uh, I heard about it at Bogart First Baptist Church. And, uh, you know, I was like a lot of you. I said, oh, I'm going to tithe. I'm going to start giving 10% of my income. And I would do that when I, remem- when I remembered to bring my checkbook to church. That wasn't very often, I discovered. Got my statement at the end of the year. And it was, man, you know, I wasn't, wasn't even close. I was at Prince Avenue Baptist Church, my new church, my, where I went to college, university. And um, Bill Ricketts was preaching on this, as I said. But what I didn't share with you last week was, was the other condition behind all this. And that was this. I was a follower of Christ. I wanted to be a follower of Christ. God had convicted me about different things in my life. And I'd surrendered those areas to my life, but never this one. But before I had jobs like in grocery stores, summer jobs at working at, I don't know, Westinghouse and uh, as a summer student. And at the end of two weeks, I got a paycheck. If I did a good job, I got a paycheck. If I did a mediocre job, enough to keep my job, I still got a paycheck. There's no risk involved. Now suddenly I was involved in commission sales. No base no nothing, and I've got to pay, pay now for a private school. No other sources but this and a loan. That's it. It's only, my only choices. And I sat there in church, and I said, God, here's my problem. Here's, it suddenly dawned on me. I said, the last, i just been at this a week, and it hadn't been that great. I mean, it's been okay. But God, my problem is I feel like I'm out there by myself. I just feel like you're not in it. Because I've never invited you to get involved in my finances. He said, that's right. He agreed with me. And so I filled out the card. Back then we came to the altar and laid them on the altar and prayed. I did that. I did all that. And I meant it. I said, God, I've given you my heart. This is just another area of my life that you're convicting me of. And, and I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to tithe what I have in the bank. And then I'm going to tithe from now on. Never look back. You say, wow, you overcame your fear. Oh, no, I did not. I chose my fear. I was more afraid of God not being involved in our finances than I was afraid that God somehow wasn't going to provide. I chose my fear. And some of you are sitting out here today and you're struggling, struggling over money, but there's, there's a deeper struggle than that because of the provision of God. And you think, are you not as good as the lilies of the field? Are you not as good as the birds of the air? You say, yeah, but you just don't understand, Pastor. I, 
I'm not sure that I'm really seeking God first. And boy, if I'm not, then I don't know how this really applies to me. Well, let's see if it really does, because what do we do? What's the solution? He does say, seek first the kingdom of God. Hey, there's a new view here, a new view of life. There's a new heart. There's a new trust. Those are the three things in your outline. The new view, that is God is the owner, and I am the steward of all things that he gives me. I am the manager. You say, well, that's not true, pastor. I mean, come on. I mean, I own it for the long as I live here on earth, and I don't mess up. I own the stuff that I have. Okay, let me give you that for just a moment, okay? Guy over here tells me that he owns everything himself. He owns his home. He owns his car. The bank doesn't own it. And all these kind of things, whatever is his, his, is his. Okay, let's just play with that for just a moment. That means there's a lady in this, all the ladies in this section, whatever you have is yours. And if that's true and that's true, then whatever you have is yours. And whatever I have is mine. In fact, God doesn't own anything. Because we will find basically the wealth, the known wealth of everything on earth is somehow connected to a person. That means that I have no right to ask God for anything. Because when I ask God for something, I'm asking him to steal. I'm asking him to steal from one of you to give to me. Or you're asking God to steal from somebody maybe you don't even know in order to give to you. It's like a Robin Hood. He robs from some to give to others. But if God owns it all, that I am free to ask God for whatever blessing needs to come my way, whatever need that I have in my life, because he's the one that owns it all, and he has to take it from no one. Whatever he takes from somebody else, from giving or in a church or philanthropy or whatever it may be, he's taking what's already his. Stewardship of life, a new view. A new view of life. And you say, well, you know, I'm just not sure about all this. One of my favorite stories, um, I, I used to study a lot of the old preachers. And uh, F.B. Meyer was a guy in England, and uh, he was a pastor. And when Dwight L. Moody, who was an American evangelist, went over to England, and they had this great revival, big awakening over there, F.B. Meyer got saved. Now, I think it's good to have a saved pastor, don't you? It's always good. And uh, he had a member of his church. His name was C.T. Studd. And he's got a biography and all that and books and just a great man uh, of God. And he was a member of F.B. Meyer's church. And he said, you know, I notice your life. And he said, I wish I had what you had. He said, what's, what's the secret to it all? And he said, well, Jesus is Lord of my life. Is he Lord of your life? And F.B. Meyer said, well, I guess he is in a general sense. And he was. I mean, you've got to be that for it to be saved. But he said, I don't know about it in a specific sense. And C.T. Studd said, it's got to get pretty specific. He took out a ring of keys. He said, I have this ring of keys, and I always carry it in my pocket. And he said, every once in a while, God will take a, a key from my heart, a room in my heart that doesn't belong to him. And I'll say, God, you need to open that one up. I want to give it to you. I'm convicted. And so that's just the next step. He opens up the door. He says, sometimes the stench in that room from my heart is almost unbearable. But I deal with the sin in my life. I give that area anew to Christ. And then I celebrate it. And then some point down the road, he comes to another place. He says, CT, there's another area in your life you haven't given to me. And you know what it is. And 
the door opens and it happens again. And he said, I look forward to the time that all of my heart belongs to God. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, how does, how does giving going to really be that for me when all these other things are not open to me? I'll tell you why. This is what God may be looking at your life right now. He may be convicting your life right now. I've had people to say to me, uh, I had a lady say to me um, not too many years ago, she said, I quit coming to your church. You want to know why? Okay. Sure. <laughs> you know, go ahead. And, you know, kind of like that. She said, all you do is preach on money. I said, well, I preach on it every January, and I'm thinking, is that? So I just asked her, I said, is that the only time you come to church? She said, that was mean. No, I said it to her in a sweet way. I promise you, she never thought she was being interrogated. And I said, you know, here's the thing. I said, what I've discovered, you know, a lot of people say the only thing I ever preach on is um, Lordship of Christ. Somebody else says the only thing I ever preach on is witnessing, and that's why maybe they're not coming. I you know, just evangelism and get out there and share your faith. And I said, and yours is money. And what I've discovered is whatever area of your life that God's dealing with, it seems like every sermon's about that. And she said, hmm. She said, that's interesting. I said, think about it. So how does this apply? Well, this may be the room that God is dealing with your heart right now. What I've discovered is, is that God blesses the areas where you surrender your life in that area. I remember when I was um, a student at the University of Georgia, and I decided that, I, boy, you know, God, there's a fire burning in my heart. I want to be in ministry somehow, some way. Didn't know I was really called that full time. But a buddy of mine went out to Bogart and started a whole new youth group out there, and I poured myself into it. You know, the Bible studies, studying for the Bible studies, I said, you know, if I do God's work, God will take care of all my school stuff. I found out that didn't work out too well. It didn't, really. I'm not joking. It, it really didn't. And I learned something from that. God blesses the areas of your life where you're planted where you needed to be and doing the work you need to do. Just being obedient. Just like the lilies of the field or the birds of the air. So there's a whole new way of looking at things. And then because of that, there's a new heart. And that new heart comes with a giving heart. The Bible says, we said last week, the whole tithe comes to the whole storehouse. What is that? What, what is that again? It's a tenth portion. That's what it means. And the Old Testament, as he was preaching all this to Jesus, was preaching this to Jewish people, they understood that. They had no problem with that. He was asking them to go beyond that. And that's where they had their fear. They never even considered that before. But he says, bring the whole tithe, and I will open up. Test me now. Put God to the test. Only place in the Bible where it says, Test me now. Trust me now, and I'll show you great and mighty things until it overflows in your life. The purpose of tithing is to teach it, always put God first in your lives. Every time I give, I'm reminded that God needs to be first in my life. Tithing has taught us obedience. It, helps, it helped me grow, provide for others in the church, and, of course, of course it reveals God to us. Now, you're looking this, this morning and thinking, you know, Pastor, I don't give anything. I give very little. How can I go from that to tithing? 10% all at once. And we've had a lot of people to try that. And a lot of, it works. It works. We have a lot of tithers in our church. But some people, I don't know, they don't have the faith for that. It's difficult for them. 
They do it maybe for a couple of months and kind of drop out because they, they don't rearrange their other 90% of their finances to obey God. They still spend that any way they want, and, and you know, that causes some difficulty sometimes. I'm reminded in the Bible where when Jesus called his disciples, he said, come and follow me. At the end of his life, he said, come and die with me. Chances are, if he had said the first, uh, the first of the ministry, come and die with me, there were some of those that just did not have the faith to do that. I remember when I received Christ, if God would have called me to preach then into the ministry, I don't know. I, I, I probably would have ran. I didn't have that kind of faith. So what kind of faith? The Bible talks about our measure of faith. Respond to the measure of faith that you have. How much do you believe God? How much do you trust him? Somebody says, well, I, we can do the 10%. I mean, it's a step of faith, a huge step of faith, but we, we need to do that to get in obedience to God. Others saying, you know, I just know that's, I just don't see that being possible. I don't have that faith. And so maybe you start off at, at 5% and next year you give 6 and the next year 7 or 10 until your faith grows. But one of our teachers and deacons came up with a great idea, and I, it's not on your card this morning, you'll see, but we, we want to make it part of it. And that is, look at the number of months. Because I want to get you to obedience as fast as I can. I want God to bless you as fast as he, as he possibly can. Why don't you try 2% in February? It's the second month of the year. So you got 2% in February, maybe 1% in January, since it's not over. 1% in January, 2% in February, 3% in March. By the time you get to the 10th month of the year in October, you're tithing. That gives you a chance to go through some of our training in, in how to budget your funds. It gives you a chance to rearrange some things in your life to where they need to be in obedience to God. And we can ask you to do one of those things as well. You know, as I look, I, I recall a couple of things. I could look at it negative, and I could look at it as a positive. I know that during the judgment seat of Christ, when I stand before God, and I give an account of my stewardship, um, I'm going to feel good about that. But if I'm at the great white throne judgment, it seems like in the book, book of Revelation I'm exer- we're observing things, and I see people being judged for their sin, maybe I'm going to be like the guy in Schindler's List. God, if I had just sold, sold this car, that could have been maybe one more. If I had sold this ring, Schindler said, I could have saved one more Jew. And maybe we'll all feel that way. Got just another percentage, just a little bit more. And so many could have come out of this crowd and joined our crowd. And it'll be true. But when all the tears are wiped away, I believe we're going to be like Jeremiah Clary. Because six months after our story began, he's sitting on his front porch on his farm and looking out on the greatest harvest of wheat ever known to the state of Oklahoma in 1931. He planted a seed. He worked the crop. The rains came and he was blessed. And I believe we're going to get to heaven. We're sitting on our front porch on our mansion and we're going to be looking at all the people we know and the crowds passing by Oh, there's the one from Haiti, and there's, there's another one from Romania, and another one from India, and another one from China, and there's my next-door neighbor, and, here, and we're thinking, God, 
because of my ministry, because of my giving, because I couldn't do it all. I partnered with others by giving. Because of my giving, look at all the harvest, the greatest harvest of all time right there before me. That can be your legacy, and that can be mine. But hey, the question is going to be asked of yourself, what do I fear the most? I'm going to choose my fear. Be afraid of missing God's blessing or being afraid of just simply God not providing for me. I remember uh, I told you the story about before. I think I didn't finish it, but I told you part of the story about us being in seminary. Pam and I were in seminary, and we were tithing in seminary. We didn't have two nickels rubbed together, but we were tithing. She was working full-time as an admin, and I was working uh, in an office part-time uh, in accounting, a little bit of accounting and uh, job at Sears. And we were putting our, our, pooling our funds together, and we were barely making it. In fact, we had one car, and it was a Ford Pinto. Anybody here even remember that car? All right, it, I know, it was one of the finest luxury cars ever made. <laughs> you know, it was a powerful monster car. That's the only car we had, and Pam was at the, I think it was Kmart Shopping Center, and uh, she gave me a call, couldn't, had to find a phone, no, no cell phones back then, but she found a phone, called me, and uh, she said, the car's died, just won't start. So I got a buddy of mine, we came there, he knew something about cars, he kind of checked things over, and he said, it looks like it's a timing chain. And um, I said, that sounds, okay, I've heard of that before, that sounds serious. How serious is that? He said, about $800. I said, I don't have $800. There's no way. I don't know if we have $80. What are we going to do? And so we did the only thing we could do. We laid hands on that car, and we prayed for it. <laughs> and I can remember us putting our hands on the panel of the steering wheel, maybe, and, but I can remember my hands being on the dash of, that, that, uh, uh, dash of the car right below the window a friend out here praying, and we prayed, said amen, and Pam gave it the start, cranked right up, never gave us a moment's problem again. Now, the moral to the story is this. You could say to me, first of all, that's just a bunch of hocus pocus. He's just flooded or whatever. Believe what you want to believe. That's fine, but we, we worked with this car and, and uh, we, we paused a long time. She didn't try to start the whole time. She was searching for me and getting me, you know. To me, it's an obvious miracle. Now, but here's the thing. You could say, Pastor, look, if you hadn't have been tithing and put that money in the bank, you would have had the $800. And you may be right. I would have had the $800, but I would have missed, we would have missed the miracle that God did. I wouldn't have that story. Sometimes we do the things that seem practical, but we miss the miracle in our life. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.